And, uh, and of course, the relationship between church and state, faith and government is being tested now by many, and particularly if you listen to a lot of YouTubers from the United States and uh, folk with alternate... Uh, there, there, are, there are such a range of views coming out of the US around this pandemic and the response, and it's so polarized and so divided, and um, people's response to government and to... Uh, science and to epidemiology and public health is being cloaked in, wrapped up in their faith and in a theology of politics and church and state. Uh, and and the, the, the internet and our community is swirling with this stuff. It may not be particularly relevant for you um, at this stage, but I thought it'd be helpful to just present a brief biblical outline of of what it is from Mark 12, how it is that we are to relate between um, church and state and what we do with uh, authority in our, in our land um, and in our government and in other sources of authority, even when and perhaps particularly when we disagree. Um, and so this is an important topic. So I'm going to um, have a crack at it in 20 minutes. Um, we may need a lot more time than that in discussion and prayer in, in another context to unpack some of the implications of this. Um, so Mark chapter 12, um, Jesus, we've seen in, in chapter 11 and the first part of chapter 12, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem and he is going head to head with the religious authorities uh, of Israel at the time. And he is a hunted man. They're trying to find ways to trap him. And they think we can trap him with uh, by, by exposing him either as a traitor to his people or a traitor to um, the Romans. So this was the, the context, right? The denarius that, the, uh, that they are talking to him about was a poll tax. That is, it was a tax imposed upon Israelites, non-Romans, by the um, occupying pagan force. It was equivalent to about the day's wages for a common laborer. It had uh, on its um, surface the image of uh, um, uh, Caesar Tiberius, so the Caesar who'd been um, the ruler of Rome since uh, Tiberius Caesar had been there uh, from AD 14 to AD 37. He'd minted these silver coins, and the inscription was Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus, and uh, had a picture, an icon of, uh, of Tiberius Caesar. And the trap was this. If Jesus said, yep, okay, uh, I'll pull out my denarius and I'll say, give it, of course we should pay tax to Caesar, then the Israelite leadership would have pointed this out to all the mass of followers and Jesus would have been a collaborator with Rome. Jesus would have um, lost all the following and his claims of leadership over Israel. On the other hand, had he said, no, we shouldn't pay this tax, then the Israelite, the Jewish authorities, would have gone to the Romans and said, here's a, here's a zealot. They were a group of zealots. He's an insurrectionist. He's a rebel. And the Romans would have had cause to... Uh, arrest him and try him as a political threat. So um, that's the context. They're trying to trap him. Now, thankfully for us, Jesus was very, very smart, right? And what Jesus says is he understands their heart. He knows that what they're really trying to do is trap him. And he says, 
Um, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now, what on earth does that mean? Um, Some have taken it to mean that uh, in this world, uh, the state has a claim over us and we should give to the state what the state, we owe the state, and we should give to God what we owe to God. But of course, that's not adequate because actually the Bible says we owe everything to God. Everything is God's. As the psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength, our denarii, our, our everything. Um, okay, so we, we actually God is overall. And, and what, what Mark's gospel is going to say in, in Mark 13, for example, which we'll get to um, in a little while, that, that God is in charge of the nations and of the catastrophes and of everything. So, so God's overall. So you can't have a, a, a neat, simple division. Well, here I'm just relating to the state and here I'm just relating to God. If you're a person of faith, it's more complicated than that. So um, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try and show you how complicated it is and, uh, and try and give you a little model of how to think about this and understand this. Um, uh, so give me a moment. Okay, so uh, broadly speaking, in fact, not even broadly, here's, here's how I see it working. Uh, you may have a different view, but this is, and, and by the way, this, what you're getting now for me, grounded in Mark 12, but comes out of my uh, lived experience as a, um, you know, as a, as a refugee from the Holocaust, uh, living in the shadow of the Holocaust and debates around that all the time, and then growing up in the Civil War in Rhodesia and then in apartheid South Africa and being involved in, uh, in a small way while I was at university in campaigns of civil disobedience, um, specifically motivated by my faith. Uh, while I was in South Africa. So uh, while you in Australia, you if you have not shared that kind of experience, may never have had the experience of having to think this stuff through. This was in my early years uh, as a Christian. This is what was massively important to me, uh, incredibly significant, and what we as uh, young Christians on campus talked and thought about relentlessly because it had a massive impact on our lives. So... Um, Here's uh, here is three here here is one way to to think about our relationship to authority, and that is that a, a Christian's response to government is submission, right? Is submission, and the texts that are commonly used to support this, in addition to Mark twelve, give to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. Uh, the book of Romans, chapter 13. We don't have time to go into all of it, but I'll just give you a sense of what that says. Uh, let every, here's what Paul says in the, to the Christians in Rome. Uh, he is, uh, this is, Rome is no democracy. Uh, Christians are, have no privilege, no status. In fact, quite the opposite in Rome. And this is what Paul says. Uh, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Okay, and then it goes on, right? Um, so the state authority is given by God, 
and, and not just benign uh, uh, liberal democracies who, have, who respect human rights. The state authority is given by God. Uh, and and that would include in our day and age, I would argue quite clearly the the whole mechanism and apparatus of government, including in our context the public health authorities, and it is the appropriate Christian response to submit to the public health authorities, the public health orders, the government as they uh, guide us and as they rule, because that's the job of government according to the Bible. Okay, so uh, there we go. Uh, there's another text that is really significant in this, 1 Peter 2, 11 to 17. Now, remember, uh, my context, I was reading all of this, you know, in, in the context of an apartheid South Africa, right? So um, quite pointed, uh, quite tricky to think through. Dear friends, 1 Peter 2, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, it acknowledges we're foreigners and exiles, whatever country we're in. Uh, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. There could be a sinful desire for rebellion, for division, for gossip, for deliberately imputing bad motives to other people, for hatred, for insurrection, all kinds of things. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And you go, yes, that's fantastic. And then you, followers of Jesus facing persecution throughout the Roman Empire... Uh, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Oh my goodness, that's a, I mean, that's an all-encompassing call for submission, isn't it? Like, come on, people, uh, submit, stop arguing, and uh, for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, so here's we start to see some nuance creeping in. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. So, you know, God is overall, I, I, I'll submit to the emperor, I'll submit to governors, because actually, you know what? I'm fundamentally God's slave. I'm not my own. I'm, I'm not rebelling against authority. I'm not rebelling against the governor to protect my rights or argue for myself or the protection of my family or my tribe. I'm, I'm trying to live all of my life as, uh, as someone who, who belongs entirely to God. Show proper respect for everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Okay. Um, these texts don't preach well in uh, some circles in the United States or even in our context where we go, no, this is so wrong because we're being oppressed by an authoritarian government. Um, as an aside, uh, our, the governments of the United States and Australia are so far from authoritarian, it's not funny. And anyone who thinks that is different needs to go and live in North Korea or first century Rome or China, you know, like get a grip, people. That's, you know, if I were to be a little more polemical, I might say something like that. I mean, I wouldn't because I'm not polemical at all and I don't want to make a point here. So um, that's, that's the first thing. And then you go, okay, well, Mark, that sounds like a recipe for complete submission. Um, is, is that right? Well, no, 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 because let me tell you what I did. There, were t there have been times in my life where I have consciously broken the law of the state, marched in protest, violated the rules of the government. How could I do that as a Christian? Uh, well, there is a... 
there can be a mandate for civil disobedience. How so? Well, the Bible itself contains uh, examples and mandated civil disobedience. Exodus 1, God's people are in captivity in, is in Egypt. The king of Egypt orders the midwives of Egypt to murder all the young children of the Israelites. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Uh, gender-based infanticide as a means of controlling a population group. And the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. So there is a clear conflict between fear of God and command of the king of Egypt, and they did what God commanded, which is extraordinary in the context. They are women. They are women who are part of an enslaved group, and they stood up at the risk of their own lives to the king of the most of their host of their of their slave masters. So uh, Exodus one, Daniel three. You probably know the story. You might know the story. Um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, they're 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 in Babylon. Now, Babylon is like the North Korea of the ancient world, and the Israelites have been taken into this oppressive regime and and they've got a privileged position these guys they're these young rulers they've been brought out they're being trained and groomed by the state they've got privilege and uh, and the king of babylon goes he'll put a great big statue in the middle of the square and says you know um everyone's got to bow down and worship and shadrach meshach and abednego refuse to do that king nebuchadnezzar finds out they're dobbed in someone calls crime stoppers and uh and, and they say, uh, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So you know what that, so when I was a young man in South Africa, what that meant, the way we thought about this was, if the apartheid government orders us to do things, that are contrary to our worship of God, we will disobey and we will willingly accept the consequences that the state inflicts on us of our disobedience, pay your fine, go to jail, God may deliver you, God may not, you've still got to do what is right because there's a recognition of the authority even of King Nebuchadnezzar with a simultaneous refusal to bow down and worship. Now, as an aside, and I don't, and on the, this 20th anniversary of um, 9-11, I certainly, and, and as we live here, I certainly don't want to invalidate anyone's concerns. But what I find very interesting is everybody is now so concerned. We've got, to, we've got to stand against totalitarian governments or overreaching governments around our public health and our rights to resist vaccine mandates or passports or this or that or the other thing. And I go... You know, the greatest gods that we as Western Christians bow down and worship are the gods of personal peace and affluence. Where, where have we been rejecting consumerism that kills people? Where have we, where, you know, so no, now, now it affects me. I go, no, no, this is just so inconsistent. Actually, this is the real gods of this age have blinded the eyes of Christians and we've absolutely wholeheartedly 
particularly in certain sections of the US, participated in a military-industrial complex that has wreaked havoc on the world. And we've done that gladly and willingly as long as our own little lifestyle of middle-class consumers is not upset and and in any way ruffled. And now our little lifestyle is being upset and ruffled and now we're discovering civil disobedience. Now we're wanting to hold the government to account. uh, it's, it's not that easy, I would have thought. Not that I feel strongly about this. I may not have realized how strongly I felt about this until I started speaking on it. So um, here we go. Um, okay. uh, there's civil disobedience in Acts 4, right? It's okay to disobey the government. Acts 4, um, the apostles takes us right into the New Testament, right? Um, Peter and John are preaching. The leaders gather them together and say, you guys shouldn't preach. So what do they do? Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You will be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen or heard. And they preach the gospel and they get thrown in jail and God rescues them. And then they count themselves worthy. They they rejoice because they've been counted worthy of suffering for their faith. Civil disobedience is never to be entered into lightly, a bit like marriage. Uh, according to the marriage, don't enter it into lightly. It's like you, you want to walk very carefully. You want to, stand, you want to understand very, very, very carefully what it is that, that where, the, where the, the state or the authority is tr- causing you to act in a way that violates fundamental principles of the kingdom of God. Um, and, and then when you do that, you have to be willing to rejoice in the suffering that will come your way. And you do it always for the good of others. You do it always for the good of others, not to protect your own lifestyle or interests. Okay, so um, I'm going to draw a little picture. So, uh, so here's there's a, there's a third way, uh, and I think this is a, a more helpful way. Or there's a, there's a way to balance these. A third way that's not pure submission, not radical civil disobedience, but it's the way of transformation time and uh, the best example of a transformational approach to uh, the city in which we live comes from jeremiah 29 again god's people in in babylon in north korea tempted to either withdraw or to disobey and god says through the prophets this is how we should live in exile in a hostile foreign environment Build houses, settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number, they do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So this is the appropriate response of followers of Jesus, even in a hostile city, which is to say we love the culture that we're in. We love the city that we're in. Even if it's persecuting us, we're going to seek the good of the city. We're going to seek to do what is best for the whole city. Uh, And that is massively significant. We can't just withdraw into a holy huddle of disobedience. Nor can we just become exactly like every other citizen in a in a just a undifferentiated mass of submission, but we hold on to our identity as God's people in exile, even with a government we disagree with, even with health orders we disagree with, 
and we seek the good of the city as a whole. Okay, so let me give you a little picture now that I hope might help this. Um, I'm, so this is how... So and, and part of this comes about because according to the Bible, you and I are not just citizens of Australia, okay? You are not simply citizens of Australia. You are... Um, we have a dual citizenship. I was going to bring all my collection of passports to show you that I'm a dual citizen, but then someone would say, but Mark, you're not even a citizen of Australia. And I'd say, yes, that is correct. But I'm trying to accumulate citizenships as I go. Um, here's what it is. We are at one level. Um, we're uh, actually, no, let me change that. This is the world, right? And, uh, and you and I are here and we're in the world and we're, we're happy little citizens of uh, whatever country, of the world. And as citizens of the world, we are here to seek the good of the world and to exercise our um, responsibilities in the world as citizens. Which in our context, by the way, because we live in liberal democracy, what that means is we have responsibility to vote, to be informed, to hold our government to account. Um, and uh, so we have that. But that's not our only citizenship, right? We are also uh, citizens of heaven. So we are citizens, we belong to God. And we live in this world in these two overlapping citizenships. And, and our primary fundamental allegiance is, is to the citizen, is to being citizens of heaven. That is what will last. This world and all its political processes, its governments, its leaders, this world will pass. It is not what is ultimate. So what is ultimate is our heavenly citizenship. So in and, and in our heavenly citizenship, there is a whole way, there are ethics and there is a framework of behavior that governs the, the, the kingdom of heaven. And our job is to try, as citizens of this world, to influence the world as we can with the values of the kingdom of heaven. Right? That's the job, is to try and expand the kingdom of heaven, the rule of heaven. So this world is more like heaven than like hell. Okay, That's the plan. Now that's very hard to do, because let me tell you something. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is not a democracy. Right, we can't we can't take from the Bible a particular understanding of how we should organize our common life as citizens of this world. Let me tell you something else: the kingdom of heaven does not have a view on the uh, efficacy of particular vaccines. The kingdom of heaven does not have a view on whether it's right to impose sanctions on Russia for invading the Ukraine. The kingdom of heaven doesn't have a view whether you should nationalize industry and uh, or you should have a, a, rad, a free market with a minimalist government. In the kingdom of heaven, uh, we all live under God and, uh, and that's our primary allegiance. So what does that mean? Uh, political theorists, Christian political theorists have said what that does and what I find incredibly helpful is for followers of Jesus... This understanding relativizes all political processes and political parties. 
So we are to be involved, we're to seek the transformation of the world, the good of the world, we're to do it by love, but we're to realize that the kingdom of heaven will not be brought in by any human means. Another way of putting this is our ultimate security will not be found in any institution. Let me tell you this right now, lest you think it's the case, and I know you don't, but I, let me tell you this, no government or public health authority is going to figure out a way to stop you and me dying. Like, it's just not going to happen, people. <laughs> and, and, and I think a lot of the, the, the temptation is to think, oh, this authority, this political system will somehow address the existential threat that, oh, I'm suddenly aware that I'm going to die. No, no, we're all going to die. No political system will prevent that, though it may make it uh, sooner or later, <laughs> and it may affect the way in which we die, for sure. So no system is ultimate. Now, if you ask me, as, as a citizen, uh, there are certain ways of ordering our life together that seem to me to be more oriented towards human flourishing, that seem better than others, like I personally prefer democracy to monarchy. Like I like the fact that I can, or tyranny, I like the fact that we all can get together and get rid of our governments every three years. So listen, if you don't like ScoMo, if you don't like Gladys, the good news is you don't have to mount an insurrection. Unlike Donald, what Donald Trump tried to do and what his supporters tried to do. You don't have to do that. This, and, and for the vast majority of human history, uh, when, when tyrants uh, rule a country, the only way to get rid of them is an insurrection and bloodshed. We've got this brilliant, brilliant system where every three years we can have a bloodless coup at the ballot box, and that's fantastic. So, uh, so there is, so you go, that's, that's genius. But is democracy specifically Christian? No. I think you can certainly see how it works, and I support it wholeheartedly as a citizen of this world, and I want to work in a, and with all the rights that I have as a citizen so that in, my, in our world the, I can advocate for the good of the city in the democratic processes. But some, there may come a time when the government of the day, whether it's democratically elected and democratically removed, or whether it's an authoritarian tyranny, directly, well, directs you and me to do that which is fundamentally contrary to life as a citizen of heaven. And at that point, as Christians, we live out our identity as citizens of heaven still for the good of the world. And so we practice civil disobedience. Uh, and I would say, as I look at the landscape of Australia now, there are no grounds, as I see it at the moment, for civil disobedience within Australia. Uh, with the exception, perhaps, <laughs> if you really wanted to push me on this, I'd probably say rather than COVID or in any public health orders, the grounds for civil disobedience might be around abortion and euthanasia legislation and what is being uh, and how that affects people in healthcare, perhaps. And we'd have to have a long argument about that or discussion over a cup of tea. Um, 
So it's complicated. It's hard. Now, what does that mean practically for us as a church or whatever church we're in? Well, we're to live together and the fundamental ethic and behavior that shapes us as a family of faith is not the politics or the democracy out in the world. It's the kingdom of heaven. We are to live as those who's and to express our fundamental identity as citizens of heaven, which means we're to love each other. We're to be completely free of fear. So one of the things that is difficult in my experience at the moment talking to people uh, is just the level of fear. And as Christians, we should not be afraid. We, we do not have a spirit of fear. Our identity, our security, our longevity, our well-being is utterly secure in Jesus Christ. The Lord is our shepherd. We will live. We can live. We are promised a life without lack. So in our fellowship, in our church, we need to always dial down the fear. And what do we dial up in response? We dial up the love. Perfect love casts out fear. The ethics of the kingdom, our identity as citizens of heaven, irrespective of what happens in the world, has to be grounded in love that casts out fear, love of enemy. It has to be grounded in uh, weeping when others weep and, uh, and, and rejoicing when others rejoice, so profound empathy for each other, uh, forgiving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, and seeking the good of others always. So that, in a nutshell, and I'm sure, there, and I know it is a deeply inadequate, scratch the surface, skim over a lot uh, of a, an approach to how we understand Jesus' view, give to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God's what is God's. This world, give Caesar his coins. It's okay. Like, they don't really matter in the end, he's saying. It's not, don't fight over the coins. Give God your all. So you know what? Give, give allegiance to your political party. Get involved. Make the world a better place. Pay your taxes. Get your vaccination. Don't get your vac. No, get your vaccination. Um, uh, advocate for refugees. Uh, get involved in the, the euthanasia debate. Get involved in tax reform. Uh, protest against gambling laws, um, you know, work for climate change, uh, try and reform our superannuation system, hold financiers to account. I mean, there's a lot we can get involved with and, and do that and, and do that across the whole spectrum of views, knowing that in the end we live a life without lack in the kingdom of the heavens and God's city, the city of God, the kingdom of heaven, will triumph and love will conquer all. I mean, it does. It has. And so we do all of this full of joy. We do all of this free of fear. And we do all of this full of love. And we do it united together. That's our testimony. That's our testimony in this world. Across these divisions, within the kingdom of heaven, as we manifest that here on earth, we do this united in love and as slaves of the Lord Jesus. That was my introduction. I jest. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, these are, are tricky, complex ideas with implications that are enormous and uh, they are not easy and they have, uh, 
the, the potential for distress and division and um, hurt and misunderstanding and getting it wrong, these are great, Lord. So I pray for our church family that you will help us to live out our authentic identity as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, as slaves of Jesus Christ, and to bear witness to the world by our love, our unity, our absence of fear, and uh, to seek the good of this great city that we live in, this wonderful, wonderful city of Sydney and this wonderful country of Australia. And uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.